I don't know if you've ever been skiing before. I went skiing a couple of times, accomplished falling, so I can't say I went skiing. I intended to ski, but I just fell down, and I'm talking the little hill, you know, the one that you're supposed to get your feet on. But maybe you are a skier, maybe you are a daredevil skier, like some of these skiers who like to ski between grows, within groves of trees. They, they, they find it exhilarating to, to find a grove of fir trees or aspens and to ski down that undisturbed snow. And when you hear them talk about it, what they say is, you have to be able to focus on the gaps. You don't focus on the trees, because if you focus on the trees, you will hit the trees. You have to focus on the gaps and keep your eye at the end. That way, you have a chance of skiing that snow, the exhilaration of doing so, but avoiding the pain and suffering of connecting with a tree. So there is a message for us in that kind of a thought process about skiing between trees. And it's not just don't do it. There is a message that we are to keep our eyes on something other than the obstacles. We're to keep our eyes on something other than the dangers. We're to keep our focus on the end goal. So I want to ask you today, when you are barreling down the mountain of life and right in the middle of all the trees, of all the sinfulness, temptations, all of the challenges to your faith, all the movements of evil, how are you navigating that? Are you spending your time focusing on the trees, as it were, how to fight this and how to fight that and how to, how to apologetically overturn that argument? Or are you focusing on the gaps, on the end result? Do you have your eyes fixed on something other than the problems of the world? Now, we still have to run through the trees, right? We still have to ski down the slope. We still have to, a life to live in the midst of, of all of the challenges that we have. But our eyes are focused in a different place. Our eyes are lifted up. Our gap is up, not in front of us. So where are your eyes when you're walking through life? Isaiah wants us to behold something. It's it's a favorite word of Isaiah and many of the prophets, right? Behold, it calls us to give our attention to something. But we're reminded in our passage today that there is a specific person that we are to behold. And he's the one that stands in the gaps, He is the one who died for us that we might have life. He is the one who sustains us as we ski through the trees, as we we endeavor to live for his glory. He sustains us. So even in the gaps, our eyes are focused on Christ. Our eyes are focused on Christ alone. There's a passage that should come to your mind automatically. I hope it came to your mind automatically that you are already thinking of this in your own mind. Scripture memory and what God is bringing to your mind. But the book of Hebrews has left my Bible. There it is. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus... 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is a good New Testament summary of the beginning of Isaiah 52, the, the fourth servant song, is it not? When we, we are getting ready to enter into this fourth servant song, and it feels like hallowed ground to us, doesn't it? We've read the chapter. Now, you know that chapter 53 actually starts in chapter 52, right? The, the markings of chapter divisions come later on, and this is one of the greatest gaffes of all the mistakes that were made. Isaiah 53 actually starts in our Bibles, 52, 13. That's where the fourth servant song starts. And many times you'll hear people read the fourth servant song and start in chapter 53, verse 1. It actually starts three verses before. And this, it's one of those texts that as I approach it for preaching and you approach it for listening and preaching and studying and applying, we have to be careful not to come with this attitude. I know this text. I know it. Because we do know it, But shouldn't we come to every passage of Scripture every time we come and expect God to do something even greater with our knowledge of that passage and help us to apply it more? Well, this fourth servant song is is right at the front of the line of passages that we might be tempted to read it very passively. So I want us to engage it actively. I want us to look for all of those clues in Scripture like where the verbs change tenses, where where there are repeated words and phrases. And you say, Rob, why do you always harp on that? Because we need to read our Bibles well, don't we? And to read our Bibles well, we need to read what the authors wrote. And they oftentimes intended us to be drawn to repeated words and phrases. They oftentimes intended us to understand certain phrases within a book in a certain way. And this is full of those. So we enter into this fourth servant song with fear and trembling, but with joy and expectation together. And Isaiah, Yahweh speaking through Isaiah starts out at the very beginning asking us to make sure our gaze is fixed. And we're saying at the very beginning of this, we'll prove it along the way, but our gaze is fixed on Jesus. The suffering servant that we have seen in the first, second, and third servant songs and now see so full-blown in the fourth servant song is none other than the Messiah promise, Jesus Christ, the incarnate God-man, coming to die so that we might have life. And this is how we engage with this. So I want you to notice, we're going to read the entire um, servant song this morning. I don't know we'll do that every week. There are five stanzas in this song, three verses each, and we'll cover it in five weeks. We could cover it in one week, and I think we would miss so much if we do that. So we're going to take one stanza a week, three verses each week, and marinate in that so that we fully understand this fourth sermon song. So let's stand together as I read the entire song especially this morning, and I want you to have your mind focused on those repeated words. Have your mind focused on when the tenses of the verb change and what that tells us. When the people change, when the pronouns change, and what what should we learn from that? Beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. 
as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths before, because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, but the will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out of his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. Now, at this point, I've only broken my outline into the five verses. As we progress through this, I may expand these verses to have an outline that's more detailed. But in this servant song, we find the fourth, in this passage, we find the fourth servant song in which we see five verses describing the servant's suffering. Five verses describing the servant's suffering. And this morning, we'll just look at the first verse, verse, chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. The servant shall be high, lifted up, and exalted as a result of his suffering to cleanse many. Let's look back at at this text, beginning right in verse 13. He starts with that wonderful word, behold, 
which draws our attention to contemplate something, not just to gaze in a direction, but to look and to contemplate and to try to understand the meaning of what's held before us to behold. And he says, behold, my servant. Now, servant, remember, we have had the, the, the term servant refer to God's people, refer to this coming Messiah who is the servant. In this section of Isaiah, beginning with these servant songs, we see clearly that the servant, almost every time, all but one, is referring to the messianic servant. And if you remember from the first servant song, we have seen different um, emphases in those servant songs, but they've all brought us a little bit of the suffering of the servant. So it's very joyful, it's very sovereign-handed that God has his hand on this servant, that God will sustain this servant, that this servant has a mission, and he will accomplish it. It will bring the gift of salvation to the nations. But in every one of them, there's a little hint of the suffering that it, that it will entail. Now this fourth servant song elaborates on the suffering. And I hope you felt as we read through that that we started with exaltation and we end with exaltation. But in the middle, we have the work of the servant. And the work of the servant almost makes us turn our head away, doesn't it? In fact, the world did turn their head away. The song tells us that. But let's remind ourselves of where we've seen this before. Keep your finger here and turn to chapter 42, verse 1. Back to the first servant song. The first servant song starts the same as the fourth. Or the fourth, I should say, starts the same as the first. 42.1, behold my servant. So look, focus on, meditate upon my, this is Yahweh speaking, my servant. And we know that as this has been developed through Isaiah, the servant will have a mission. And that mission is Yahweh's mission that the servant carries out. Behold my servant whom I uphold, So he is sustained by the Father, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So starting in the first servant song, we see the nod not just for the Israelites, not just for the remnant returning back to Jerusalem, but to the nations, to the coastlands, to the furthest place. All the way through Isaiah, the salvation of Yahweh through his son, through the coming servant in Yahweh's viewpoint, yet to come, that servant is to bring salvation to the world, to all who would believe in him. Never intended to merely be the Israelites, always intended to be the people that God chooses for himself. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 2 of chapter 42. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. You see the little hint The little hint of suffering even in that first servant song. So we're tying all these together in the fourth servant song because we're starting the exact same way. And also in this fourth servant song, we see many repeated words and phrases that mark the topic of the servant song and they're introduced, many of them, right here in these first three verses. So these first three verses are an introduction to the exalted servant who must first suffer. And that bends our mind, doesn't it? 
And we see that tension even in these first verses. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Isaiah 52, 13, if you're not back there yet. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. What on earth does that mean? If you see your ESV footnote, it also says it could be shall prosper. Some of your versions may have something like will succeed. And which one is it? Yes, it is all of them. This is the word that has that meaning. The word behind this means to act wisely, prudently, and so guarantee success. Guarantee prosperous endeavors. And you've seen this before. And maybe this idea of success and prosperity being the result of wise living, and as we put this across the whole pattern of Scripture, listening to and obeying the Son, It's because this wise living leads to that prosperity. This isn't one of those verses like our word faith people talk about that we're guaranteed riches, that we're guaranteed earthly blessings, although sometimes God blesses us with that. This is the same word that's used in passages like Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. That's our word. Do you see how the verse defines the result? It's listening to and being obedient to God and his word. We add this across the Old and New Testaments. It's listening to and being obedient to his son. This is what he says when he appears at at his baptism and his transfiguration, does he not? He said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And at the transfiguration, he says to obey him, listen to him. And this is what is brought in Isaiah in chapter 52, verse 13, where he says, my servant shall act wisely. My servant will do what I send him to do, and there will be success. And why? What did we learn in chapter 42, verse 1 just a minute ago? He undergirds him. He sustains him. It is Yahweh who, who what is the language of, that we just read that now skips my mind? I'm going to go right back there to be sure that I'm using the right language. In whom, my, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom I delight. That's what's being said here. The servant will be upheld by the father, obedient to the father, and accomplish what the father sends him to do. This is used throughout the Old Testament in various ways. This word is also used of of David in 2 Samuel 8. David tells Solomon that he will be prosperous and successful if he obeys the word of the Lord in 1 Kings chapter 2. Hezekiah, it's used of him that he he will be successful when he's doing the work of the Lord in 2 Kings 8. But Jesus uses the same idea in John chapter 11 or 17, doesn't it? He says, I glorified you on earth. This is Jesus in that prayer to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Was he successful in what God sent him to do? Yes. Jesus from his own lips says, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's in chapter 17, verse 4 of John. Just two verses earlier, he describes that work, to bring salvation to all of those you have given me. That is the work of the servant. That is the work of the Messiah. And in this very first phrase in this fourth servant song, we're lifted up to this height of joy as we learn that his servant, 
will act wisely. He will, he will do what he's supposed to do in obedience and he will be prosperous and successful in the work. And hallelujah for us, amen? Because his work was to bring us to glory. His work was to do what it took to make the unholy be able, the unholy one, the unrighteous one be able to stand in the presence of God and to worship instead of die. That's his work. And we're seeing right at the beginning, we will learn how that has to happen. Now remember what we just learned in the last, in the first 12 verses of this chapter. It's this glorious picture of the good news that will be triumphed and, and spread throughout the land, remember? And he calls them to depart from, in the Exodus language, of, of the, from the exile. He calls them depart from the exile and return home. But we looked at that and we said, that is us also departing from sin, departing from the cares of the world in order to walk in light of what Christ has set us to do, set us forth to do. So there is this joyous expectation of salvation and And so far, we're still euphoric, are we not? Beginning in verse 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. And so we're not let down at all. We're expecting this miraculous coming king. And And we're not dissuaded from that. Look back at your text at the second line. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, where have we heard that language before? It's only, this high and lifted up phrase is only used of Yahweh. It's only used of God. It's not used of anyone else. Now, there are many phrases talking about the arrogance of man, man lifting himself up or, or being high and God making him low. There are many uses of that. There are uses of, of exalted, of, of men exalting themselves. But when this phrase high and lifted up happens, we already read one place it happens. You know it, Isaiah 6 Right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the glory. Now we said when we went through Isaiah 6 that yes, that is Yahweh the Father, but it is also Yahweh the Son. Remember? The New Testament sees uh, Isaiah 6 as speaking of Jesus as well as the Father. So it's high and lifted up. I want you to keep your finger right in chapter 52, and I want you to turn over to chapter 57, verse 15. Just a few pages to the right. This is the other time that it's used. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Now we've been in Isaiah long enough to know exactly who's holy and who is high and lifted up. This is, this is Yahweh himself. Now in chapter 35, there are a couple of other instances of exalted and hot where God says he will arise himself in verse 10 of chapter 53, um, 35. See, I switched those around and nobody corrected me. I can't believe that. 35, it says that God arises himself. He says, I will arise and I am high and lifted, lifted up. So there are these languages in this language in Isaiah only of the father. So if we had any wonderings like this, which are, which are not bad wonderings, I'm in Isaiah. I wonder if the servant here is Israel or if the servant here is Isaiah himself or if the servant is the messianic servant. That question is answered right at the beginning, isn't it? It is answered that the servant is God. He is, shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
So this is one that we're expecting. This is one that the world might expect. This is what kings would expect in power for people. If you are going to be a king, you better be strong. You better have a throne. You better have a following. You better be one who can take command and take charge and have your rule over everyone. That's what the world would have expected. And so far, we're still so excited because this salvation that was talked about so clearly in in the verses earlier in chapter 52, it would make sense that the most powerful would come and show himself in that kind of power. But Isaiah 50, this servant song in Isaiah 53 is like a roller coaster, isn't it? One minute we're at exaltation and the next minute we're at humiliation and suffering because that was the mission of the servant. Look at your text. 13. Right after he shall be exalted, exalted comes verse 14. As many were astonished at you, We'll come back to that. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And all of a sudden we're like, wait a minute. What, what happened to the exaltation? What happened to the high and lifted up? I, I don't understand this. We have moved from glorious exaltation to Someone who's not even looking like man anymore. What is going on here? What are you up to, God? And this is where we remember, wait a minute. We've already learned this. We've already heard passages like chapter 49. We already read in chapter 42. But we also remember that we have read, Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. That was in the third, the second servant song. We also read in that servant song where the servant himself says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right, my justice is with the Lord. And yet again in the third servant song, verse 6 of chapter 50, I gave my back to those who strike and put my cheeks to those who pull on the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. And we're reminded, wait a minute, we've already had hints that this is what the servant will do. So we're not shocked anymore. This is required by the Lord. Look at that first phrase in verse 14. As many were astonished at you. Now you might have a version that adds my people in there or something like that. It's not in the text. I think what this text says is it's a turn. It's Yahweh speaking. And you saw the changes of different people speaking in different tense. Some things are referred to as past tense. Some are future tense. We're in future tense here. You saw that, right? Behold, my servant shall act wisely, shall be high and lifted up, shall be exalted. And then all of a sudden we're moving here. His appearance was so marred. And, and uh, it, the, the past tense verbs that are there. But this is where he turns to the servant, as it were. We've seen this already, where there's this little insertion of the voice of the servant when the father is speaking. Here we're seeing the father turn and speak to the servant. It's almost an affirmation of the horridness of what had to happen to him to accomplish the will of the father. As many as were astonished astonished at you. 
And the word astonished has the idea of being appalled at. It's not just astonished like we would be astonished at something that, that amazed us. It's amazing, but it's appalling. And he turns to the son. He turns to the servant and recognizes that the suffering he went through was indeed great and horrible suffering. And in Isaiah's day, it would be the suffering that he will go through. So I don't think he's talking about the people here. I don't think his focus shifts to the, to the people of God, Israel, as the servant. He shifts his focus at this point to his son with an empathetic appeal that they were appalled at you. And then he turns again with a third person. His appearance was so marred. So now he's talking about the, the servant again in third person, like he started in verse 13. His appearance was so marred beyond human uh, semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. When he suffers, what he endures, it makes him hideous. He doesn't even look like a man anymore. And we're shocked at this point. This is one who is glorified. This one is high and lifted up and exalted, but he's also one who is so marred that he doesn't even look like a human being anymore. This idea is going to be fleshed out throughout chapter 53. We're not going to spend that much more time on it here because we're going to see some more specifics of what happened. But this introduction introduces us to those kinds of themes. And this is, this, I want you to see how verse 14 and 15 fit together. Verse 14 starts with as, right? Maybe it says just as. That captures, I think, the Hebrew better. Just as, many were astonished at you, and then verse 15 starts with, so. And the ESV highlights this by putting the, the, sets it off with the hyphens there around the most of verse 14. Many were astonished at you, so shall he sprinkle. Well, the middle part of that verse also starts with the same Hebrew form for so or for. Just as many were astonished at you, for you were marred beyond human, beyond, uh, human semblance, so, and here's the result of that. And so now we're thinking, okay, there is a purpose. There is a purpose. Yahweh has a purpose for this suffering servant. Verse, verse 15 begins to bring that out for us. Look there. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Now there's dispute on whether this should be um, the word sprinkle or whether this should be the word something like startle. Um, the word can be, can be translated either way because they've looked at other manuscripts to find this to make it fit better. Because if, if verse 15 says, so shall he startle many nations, that kind of fits with kings shutting their mouth and having that response. But I think sprinkle is the right way. I think sprinkle is what, the, what Isaiah intends for us to understand. It's what Yahweh had Isaiah put down. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Now, if you're a Jew and you heard, hear the word, sprinkle, what do you immediately think of? What is it? Blood. The blood. The, the oil. The, 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 the things that were supposed to happen in the temple. That's what you're thinking of. The sprinkling of the blood on the priest, on the altar, on everything. Everything's covered in blood because without the setting of blood there is no forgiveness, forgiveness of sin. So that's where your mind is automatically. Sprinkle is tied to that. Sprinkle automatically has every Jew thinking the nations? Sprinkle the nations? What on earth is this? We're sprinkling God's things for God's people so that God's people, the Hebrew people, the Jews, can come and be a part of him. 
But this has always been God's intent, has it not? For the nations to come. And we've seen that from the very beginning, chapter two of Isaiah, that it's about the nations coming and the Jews and the nations all coming to worship God according to what he says. Well, if we, if we take this word and look at uh, most of the times it occurs, 31 times it occurs in the ESV. There are different words that are translated this, but most of those are in Leviticus and um, all in with all of the descriptions of the laws around how the priest had to come in and do their work. Leviticus and Numbers, that's where most of them come from. But it also trails right into the New Testament language because the New Testament writers understood that sprinkling was to lead to Christ. Because the New Testament writers use the same kind of language. Hebrews 1.3, after making purification... That's the effect of the sprinkling, right? Making purification. So the word sprinkle doesn't um, occur here, but it's the effect of the purification, and the rest of Hebrews bears this out. After making purification for sins, he, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Later on in chapter 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if that, the old covenant, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that blood purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Two chapters later in verse 12, after talking about the the old covenant, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Speaks the word of forgiveness because of its perfect shedding. Finally, the last place it occurs in the New Testament, it recurs three or four times talking about the Old Covenant and the Old Covenant practices, but these are the times that it refers to Christ. First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So this word sprinkling, back in Isaiah 52, 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The, Old, the New Testament tells us exactly what happens, what the Father intends the, the servant to do in order to sprinkle the nations. He intends to give him as a sacrifice to die, to shed his blood, so that the nations can come to God. The nations can come to Christ. And that's the picture here. And we're going to understand as this servant song continues how that happens and what needs to happen in order for that sprinkling to take place. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. 
kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Now, this can be a little confusing here, can't it? If he is going to sprinkle the nations, that many nations will be sprinkled. They will come from every tribe, tongue, people. That, that, that's who Jesus intends to reach. Now, all of a sudden, we have the kings coming in here. We have this talk of kings. They shall shut their mouths. Now, we've already heard this idea in a previous servant song in chapter 49, uh, verse 7. So this fills it out a little bit. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. This is the, the humiliation. And then Yahweh says, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of Yahweh, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you, the servant, the one that he has chosen. So these kings now, the next verse tells us, this verse tells us they shut their mouths. Now we know that language, don't we? That's the language Paul used in Romans in chapter three, that all mouths are shut before the righteous work of God as he deals with sinful men, Jew and Gentiles. When God works, men's mouths are shut. And if men's mouths are still, mouths are still unhinged and talking, judgment will follow because they don't realize they're standing in the presence of the Holy One. Well, here it's pictured that the kings, the powerful ones, the ones who had had their eye caught by one who is going to be high and lifted up and exalted, right? That would have been something they would have caught their eye. Maybe this is a challenger to me. Now these kings, their mouths are shut. And notice how it is tied to the humiliation of the high and exalted one. Now why would that shut their mouths? They're the ones who are astonished that this high and exalted one would be humiliated. But the text tells us in the last two phrases, doesn't it? For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So this idea of the suffering, they had not been told that, but now they are seeing it. You see how we've lifted our gaze to the kings of all the earth. When Jesus comes and he lives and he suffers and he dies, that suffering and his resurrection and his exaltation for the rest of history Kings look at that and they see something different than what they see. The rich and powerful see something different than what they strive after. They did not see it before. It had not been told them, but now they see it. They had not heard of it, but now they understand that this one who comes must suffer because this is not your typical king who comes, is it? These are the words that Paul used. You can turn there if you want, Romans 15 Paul uses these words in, in Romans 15, verse 21, to establish his own ministry. Romans 15. We'll start in verse 17. He quotes this verse in verse 21. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason. He's, just, he's, he's talking about his ministry to the Gentiles. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. 
And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So this is Paul using Isaiah's words to say, this is what happens when the gospel is preached. I'm preaching the gospel because they will see and understand even those things that he has not been heard. This is, this is the verse he builds his apostolic preaching ministry to the Gentiles upon, what Isaiah says here. So this is what happens when you and I preach Christ. When you and I preach Christ, things that people have not seen or heard are now seen and understood. Now, sometimes that seeing and understanding leads to rebellion and rejection of what they understand, right? Sometimes it leads to the rejection of that. You will preach the gospel and people will reject it and reject you and maybe revile you. But they have seen enough and understood enough to know to reject it. They're not just looking at it and saying, well, what does that mean? They're seeing it and not liking it. But for those... For those who God has set his affection on and are drawing to himself, those people see and understand and it leads them to salvation. Paul knew that and he said, this is why I preach. This verse is the foundation of his apostolic ministry. Now, if we stop and think about most kings, most people with power, maybe we don't see kings in our country, but we have a lot of people full of money and full of power that exercise that power. They do what they want. They buy what they want. They control people with that money. And if they're, if they're righteous, they're, they're, they're doing good things with the money. But if they're not, they're doing bad things with the money. But they have power. They have influence. And they would never dream of suffering in order to have that. They may think they've suffered to get to that point, but they're holding on to all of their power. This king says, within my power, I choose to lay down. I choose to give up my life and submit it to suffering. You've heard this read already this morning, but I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. It's the other passage in our, in our New Testament that really reflects these three verses in a powerful way and helps us understand what we are to do. Philippians chapter 2, this is what Lucas read for us already. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and the answer for that is what? There is. That's the expectation. He's, he's not saying, just in case there is, he's saying, I know there is. These things all exist for you who are claiming Christ. Complete my joy, verse 2, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Now, there's got to be a reason that Paul would tell them to do all that. There's got to be a reason Paul tells us that this is the Christian life. This is the Christian life because the one who made that life Christian, Christ himself, lived his life this way. Verse 5, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Now, this is the king of glory. This is the high and exalted and lifted up one who chooses to take on humanity in order to save humanity, who chooses to lay down his life. No earthly king does that. No earthly king sees the reason for that. But because he did this, because he chose to do this, because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, look at that great word in verse 9. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This one who is going to be exalted, high and lifted up. Now, I don't want to read too much into Isaiah, but Jesus uses this lifted up language, doesn't he? Of his own death on the cross, that he would be lifted up, that he would be the one lifted up so that others would live. So this effect on our life comes back to the question that we ask at the very beginning. Where's your focus? Is your focus on the one that is high and lifted up and exalted because he came to be humble? He came not to, be, not to serve, but to be served and give his life a ransom for many. A very important word for us in Isaiah 53. We see it here about the many nations. It'll occur three or four more times. And it's always talking about the recipients of that grace. And so if this is what Jesus did, the one who was high and exalted and lifted up before his incarnation comes to earth humbly to serve and to die so that others would have life and now has been exalted and high and lifted up at the right hand of the Father, that is the one that we keep. He is the one that we keep our focus on. And we do it for two reasons. One, because we know our end result because of his end result. Amen? He has been resurrected from the dead, so we will be resurrected from the dead, those of us who are connected with him and in Christ. He is exalted to the right hand of the Father and we will see eternity with him worshiping him face to face because of his work. All the kings of the earth, they live and exercise their power and they die. This king of the earth lives the exalted life, comes to earth and humbles himself before men. His his face and his visage is so manipulated by the straps and the beating and the blows he takes. We aren't even to the cross yet in this description in our text. You see that, right? This is just the beating that leads up to that. And he chooses to do that, and the Father resurrects him and exalts him to, the right, to his right hand. He's seated at the right hand of God in glory, full of majesty. So for us, we are keeping our eyes on Jesus, but we need to remember that the Jesus that is exalted is the Jesus who is humiliated. So when we're navigating the trees and we're navigating our life, Paul's words in Philippians are an application of this and many other verses, are they not? This is the way Jesus lived. This is the way we live. Now, sometimes the tree, we may miss the tree, but the tree hits us, amen? We've missed it, but it still hits us. Sometimes we're foolish and we just ride right for the tree. We're just not even thinking about the gaps. We're thinking about the tree, We've forgotten about Jesus, haven't we? 
But for those of us who are united to him, those of us who are connected with him by faith, those of us who are beneficiaries of his work, he exalts us at the proper time, doesn't he? Our, our eternity is sure. The, the, where we're fixing our gaze at the end is sure because Christ is already, using the language of Hebrews, he has already gone in to the heavenly places. He has emblazoned the past. He has been our trailblazer. And so we will be where he will be. Now, there are a lot of things I've tried to avoid that are going to be um, expounded upon in the rest of this text in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 53. But know that this is our introduction. This is where we get introduced to the one who is, is exalted and humiliated. And for us, this is a picture of our life. We're not concerned, we're not concerned about exalting ourselves to anywhere. What we're concerned about is walking in the footsteps of our Savior as we navigate this life. Because we know He is seated in glory at the right hand of the Father. He is exalted. The Father has seen and, and um, exalted Him because of His work, because He was faithful to accomplish what the Father sent Him to do, the salvation of all that the Father had given Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love for us, for Your care and concern for us. And we pray this morning that this this resurrected Christ, the one who is seated at your right hand, but the one who is humiliated, who is scourged, who is spit upon, who willingly gave his back, who willingly shed his blood, that he is the one, Father, that our eyes are fixed upon. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And we pray this morning that every time that we as believers are walking through this life and we stumble and we fail and we pursue sin and we give in to sin, presenting our bodies to sin for unrighteousness, that you will remind us that he not only suffered and died, but he is exalted as well. And that our eternity is secure because of his work. But we also pray, Father, if there are those here this morning who have not um, entered into a relationship with this exalted suffering servant, that today would be the day that you would draw them unto yourself. Let them be drawn into his suffering, not repelled by it. Father, we pray that you would be glorified, that our lives would be affected by this servant song in such a way that advances your kingdom, that makes us more faithful in our obedience to Christ, more faithful in our preaching of the gospel, and that we fall more in love with you and your son and your spirit along the way. So we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.